0: Welcome to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetics, genomics, and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org. J-A-X dot O-R-G.
1: Welcome to Supplemental Material, Episode 12. I'm Dave Mellert, and I'm back again with
2: Annalisa Lucido.
1: And we have to share a microphone right now because we're doing another four-person episode today. <laughs> but uh, so if we sound weird cutting in and out, it's because we're sharing a microphone. Um, yeah, but today is going to be a fun episode. We have two guests, as I uh, alluded to. You want to introduce the guests?
2: Sure. We have two of our newest recruits to jax two senior investigators who are doing really, really exciting work. We have um, Peter Robinson and Roel Verhack, both of whom are computational biologists, uh, but each with their own flavors. So thank you both for coming.
3: Thank you. Our pleasure.
1: Yeah, so why don't we start with you, Roel. Uh, just give, a, give us a brief overview of your research vision and, and what you hope to do here at JAX.
4: All right. Uh, Well, thanks, first of all, for having me today. Um, My name is Roel Verhaak. I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I just moved here from Houston, Texas, uh, where I was a um, researcher at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. That means that the focus of our research is cancer, and more specifically, we work on brain tumors, and even more specifically, we work on gliomas. Our scope is typically um, sort of big data analysis, and when I say big data, I mean billions of data points that we generated from patient tumor samples. So what we did at MD Anderson and before that was to take patient samples, do uh, sequencing on them, and through sequencing, try to make inferences about the tumors themselves both in terms of disease biology, like what drives the tumours, what does the microenvironment of the tumours look like. We also ended up translating that into patient classification. The most recent classification for adult brain tumours now includes some of the markers we ended, we discovered in our research. So what are we doing at JAX and what my group and I will be doing at JAX is we've taken that research with us um, and increasingly we're Uh, interested in therapy resistance, because glioma is a tumor type that's really hard to treat. Tumors uh, invariably recur, and every time the tumor recurs, it becomes uh, more resistant to radiotherapy and chemotherapy. And we hope to make use of all the fantastic genomic technologies that JAX-GM has to better understand therapy resistance.
1: Now, uh, just a quick question, because um, I'm familiar with your work. Uh, The audience knows that Annalisa and I are writers, so uh, they might not be surprised to find out that I've uh, seen some grant proposals from you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, could you just say something really quick about this consortium that you've uh, spearheaded?
4: Yeah, so we're in the midst of setting up a international consortium that's called the GLASS consortium. Uh, GLASS is Glioma Longitudinal Analysis. So. As I just said, we are increasingly interested in therapy resistance and what GLASS, what the purpose of GLASS is, is to bring together 1,500 patient samples, but patient samples taken at multiple time points. So a patient walks into the doctor's office with a headache and ends up being diagnosed with a glioma. Then the first uh, therapeutic mode of action is uh, a debulking surgery. So at that time, a patient sample uh, is, is collected and that patient sample will be from an untreated tumor. As I also said, the tumor then ends up recurring after one year, after five years, after ten years, it recurs. And in that window of time between the original diagnosis and the recurrence, the patient and the tumor will have seen a bunch of treatments. And those treatments will end up changing the characteristics of these tumors. So when you take tumor samples, when you collect tumor samples at multiple time points, um, that would help you to better understand what the therapies are really doing. However, it's really challenging to collect these tumor samples, um, and that's why we think we need an international consortium to bring together a large enough number of those collections uh, to be be able to do research that is statistically
2: sound, robust, and so forth. Thank you. And Peter, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your research?
3: Sure. Um, I have a dual training in in medicine and computer science, and um, I'm a pediatrician, and I I worked as a clinician for about six or seven years, but I was drawn back to research and especially to bioinformatics. And a lot of what we're doing in, in my group is developing computational resources and algorithms and software to compute over clinical data. And one of the things that we've developed is called the human phenotype ontology. And this is a semantic network that describes All of the signs and symptoms, all of the abnormal laboratory findings, all of the abnormal imaging findings that you might come across as a physician in the course of the diagnostic process. While it's easy for computers to compute over numbers or or strings of nucleotides in in a genome sequence, it has been much less obvious how do you compute over clinical findings such as liver insufficiency or dilatation of the aortic root. And our ontology uh, now has about uh, 12,500 individual findings that are all defined computationally with cross-references to anatomy, biochemistry, genes and proteins, embryology, pathology, and so on, in a way that allows you to compare individual patients, compare diseases, and compute across them to get the computer to calculate a similarity between an individual patient uh, and a representation of a disease in a database. And we've used this to develop software that will take a genome sequence that's been done either diagnostically or with the intent of finding a new disease gene. And by actually combining that with our analysis of the clinical phenotype, we're able to find really good candidates in that list, and use them for, for diagnoses, uh, diagnostics, as well as for various kinds of translational research. So much like with uh,
1: role, you also work as part of a larger <laughs> consortium effort, right? The, this Monarch yeah.
3: Initiative? Yes. So we've uh, come together with a number of other groups, including some of the founding members of the Gene Ontology Consortium, which is ontology for gene functions, to embed what we're doing. in in a larger semantic universe which is part of the reason why i came to JAX, one of the ways that we have now of, of actually understanding human genes is to compare them with mouse genes and other genes of other model organisms but again it's not entirely obvious how to do this without going through each gene one by one which you know you might be able to do for one exome or genome if you had a few days or a week But, you know, it gets to be impossible to do without a lot of computational help in in large projects. And so the challenges are, um, for instance, how do you know that uh, the snout of a mouse is related to the nose of a human? So you can't find that if you're comparing text, obviously. But we have a cross-species anatomy ontology basically says that a nose is the same structure evolutionarily as a a snout is and and the same thing across the, the body. And so the system has been used, uh, for instance, by a team at the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program to take the phenotypic abnormalities of a patient with an undiagnosed bleeding disease that couldn't be diagnosed despite the efforts of many, many doctors, um, about a week's stay in Bethesda, and to then use the system to look for mouse genes and mouse models that were similar to the phenotypes the patient had and then to additionally filter for genes that had potentially pathogenic mutations. And by doing so, we're able to make a diagnosis of a a new genetic syndrome based on similarity to this mouse disease. And so that sort of work uh, is a focus of our Monarch initiative.
1: So uh, I'm glad that we have you both here, because you both are taking computational approaches, but you're kind of exploring things from different perspectives. So Roel, with with you, you're focusing on one disease or set of diseases and, and trying to better... Categorize patients. And Peter, I guess, how would we describe that? More like coming up with a language that computers could use to do that sort yep, of thing, yep. uh, both <laughs> well, across and people the and,
2: and clinicians and, and researchers yeah. alike can use yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. to drive discovery. I have a number of questions. My first one, I'll ask it since you both have clearly spent a lot of time in Europe. Just your, in terms of your patient pools, do you have an easier time accessing relevant patient populations in the United States? Or in Europe, what is the culture around clinical research in those two places, and how are they different or similar? Or they might very well be similar. I don't, I don't know.
3: There are many states in Europe and many opinions about that. Um, I would say that the UK has been a leader in genomic medicine, first because they've been investing in institutions such as the Zenger Institute, the EBI, for, for decades and decades and decades, but also because the people there apparently um, welcome this this kind of research and gladly give their consent for their data to be used anonymously Mm -hmm. in studies. And so you have studies such as the UK Biobank, the 100,000 Genomes Project, and many, many others where, where... lots and lots of people have willingly agreed to participate and in many cases without actually getting personal benefit back but just for the good of society. Mm -hmm. If you compare that with uh, Germany where I lived for about 25 years, in Germany people are much more concerned about data privacy and and are much less willing to uh, contribute their data to to studies. I I think another major difference is that there's a lot more funding in the United States for medical studies possible exception of the UK, which is, as I say, very, very active. But um, there's a lot more, substantially more studies in the US that are using genomic medicine and also phenotypes to to address questions of uh, genetic diagnostics and increasingly precision medicine. Would you agree with that role?
2: Yeah, my
4: perspective is not different. I just have a a different set of experiences than Peter has. Mm -hmm. I think a fundamental difference between Europe and the US is the way healthcare is being afforded. In the Netherlands, where I'm from, we have what some might describe as social healthcare, where you know anybody can essentially walk into the clinic and expect a similar level of care. In the U.S., uh, whether you go to MD Anderson or a small community hospital will determine uh, the quality of the healthcare you receive. So that's one fundamental difference. Because of that, or at least in part because of that, I also think that the level of clinical annotation that we would uh, receive, you know, we as the sort of data end users is often richer when we get data sets from Europe than we when we get data sets from the U.S., as patients in the U.S. might actively seek what they perceive as better care by going through different hospitals, thereby dispersing the treatments they're getting, um, and then the researchers will have a more difficult time accessing their clinical treatment data. Whereas in Europe, it's often centered at one location into one hospital management system with a local radiologist and a local oncologist and a local pathologist. So we have everything in one place. So that makes for us a difference. Mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have less experience with the ethical uh, perception of, of sequencing.
1: One of the, the big purposes of computational biology is, uh, biology and medicine are both going as an understanding very large... Data sets, And there's a lot of challenges in that. One is acquiring good data to begin with, and then the other major challenge, I guess, is in coming up with useful methodologies for processing that data and, and learning new and interesting things. So I guess my more open-ended question here is, is moving forward, what's, what's the future of computational biology, both with regard to the data that goes in and then strategies for dealing with that data and learning something from the data?
4: I think technology drives knowledge. And the reason that we've seen such an increase in a need for computational methods is because we've had so many new technologies that generate so much uh, new data. And some of that actually has been going on here at Jack's GM with a person like Yijin Ran, who develops these new applications for standard sequencing uh, methods. I think, and biology, disease biology and, and basic biology has seen a real increase in the application of those technologies is because they and and that is because they are able to address questions that before that we weren't able to address and throughout that process these technologies, these sequencing technologies but also things like proteomics and uh, maybe array-based things in my view have become a fundament to biology. So that means that while we're talking right now about computational biology I think computational biology is really becoming biology I think in, in 10 years it's going to be difficult to do any type of research with having at least part of that making use of computational methods of the types we are already using today. And to any trainees that listen to this, I would say if you're not learning at least how to interpret the answers that computational methods can give you, you're going to miss the boat. Um, you really need to be able, you don't necessarily need to be able to program even though that would be a good thing, but not, that's not for everybody. But you need to, at minimum, understand what you're looking at and not assume what people give you is the right or the wrong answer.
3: Yeah, I can't agree more the the fact that technology drives discovery. Um, recently was was uh, looking at a Wikipedia page of the, what's he called, Adrian van Leeuwenhoek, who both invented the first microscope and was the discoverer of bacteria. And today, with... Genomics and proteomics and and high-throughput data-driven methodologies, we're in a unique situation that has very unique challenges because computational scientists, bioinformaticians, are are now in the position of Lovenhoek. We're, you know, the first people to see the data, we're the first people to try to understand how to process the data with appropriate robust statistics machine learning algorithms for discovery. The task, though, is getting massively more difficult than looking through a a tube and and looking at some rods and saying, oh, that's a bacillus, because to actually be good at bioinformatics, you have to understand how to program a computer, you have to understand statistics, you have to understand biology, you have to understand medicine. So another topic is, is, I think, team science, and I think that to really flourish that bioinformaticians need to be part of scientific teams, uh, in some cases to lead scientific teams, in other cases to work with other groups. A, a lot of the innovation I- is really going to be to say, the primary experiment is going to give me gigabytes, terabytes, or, or even more than terabytes of, of data. Nobody's actually going to look at every byte. And so what people are going to look at is the results of of an algorithm. And so unless the bioinformatician is intimately involved with developing the hypotheses of the experiment, the design of the experiment, the the overall strategy of a scientific program, we're going to fail to to achieve the the full potential genomics and of science. And so it's a very exciting time to to be here at JAX with world-class scientists from a range of fields, resources that that very few places have and, and also a commitment to bioinformatics and to, to computing. So
2: those are really interesting perspectives about the you know the challenges from the from the research aspect. But I'm also I'm also pretty curious to hear your thoughts about challenges in adopting kind of these applications of computational biology in medicine. Um, There certainly have been applications that I I imagine a lot of people have heard about, cancer panel genomic testing. There are tests available that if you have a cancer, you can do a genomic test and you can sequence for a series of genes and identify which genes are mutated and those could tell you a little bit about the treatment options that are available to you. Beyond that, I can imagine there are still a lot of barriers, one being the cost of these tests, two being the ability of a a medical professional to, to use these tests intelligently, and and three you know to a certain extent the complexity of the tests and the complexity of the data and being able to maximally use this complex data to really find and diagnose really challenging diseases like how do you envision you know as we continue to go forward beyond cancer panel testing the adoption of you know these computational techniques in medicine
3: the, the typical way that a physician uses tests, what they teach you in medical school is: don't order a test unless you would do something if it's abnormal. If you're looking at a genome sequence, it's it's full of deviations from some norm, and so it's it's not obvious where to place this in the in the typical medical pipeline. A- another big difference is that with with many of the tests that we have, it's possible to interpret one value. So if you have you know a hemoglobin count of, of you know four milligrams per deciliter, it's an anemia. You don't have to think about, you know, hundred other lab values to understand that. And part of what a physician did was to integrate the fifty lab values and findings and, and physical findings to come up with a diagnosis. And and this was done oftentimes by, by intuition. What bioinformatics does, it, it does that with an algorithm. And so the physician is now being presented with an inference and say, well, do I believe this or not? But um, because a lot of the, the, the inference is, is hidden from the physician, it's a little bit harder to use your intuition to say, well, do, do I believe this? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the methods that one uses as a computer scientist in, in machine learning have been described as black box. So for instance, if you, if you take a support vector machine, which is a very powerful tool in machine learning, that basically can take extremely complicated data and find a way of classifying this in, let's say, normal and disease. This may work with an accuracy of you know ninety nine percent, but you you m- might have no idea why that worked. And and so I th- I think one of the challenges for bringing bioinformatics into day to day medicine is to make the algorithms more transparent, and to to choose algorithms that, in a sense, are are able to document why the inference that was made was made.
4: So I want to go back to what Peter said about machine learning. So machine learning is basically when you have a big data set, the algorithm can infer information from that big data set and, and apply it to new data sets, basically predicting what for that new data set the outcome might be. Now you can translate this to... Hospitals, because in hospitals, lots of data is being generated on a day-to-day basis in molecular diagnostic labs and in the offices of physicians who make treatment decisions based on those lab results. Um, And the same is true, of course, for these cancer gene panels. A physician orders the gene panel to be run for a particular patient. Those results come back, and the physician may or may not make a decision based on those results. So if you think back about a place like MD Anderson, that sees about 30,000 patients a year or similar hospitals in the New England area, that's a huge amount of data that's being generated on a day-to-day basis. Now, if you're able to capture all that data, you have a wealth of knowledge sitting right there And all you need to do really is mine that using different machine learning algorithms. And I know that's exactly what some of these places are doing. They've been working on unlocking all those databases, because you have to imagine over the years those data sources have become quite fragmented. Mm -hmm. But once you're able to build a data warehouse where you capture all the information being generated in a hospital, and you're able to run machine learning algorithms on that data warehouse, you now can build a tool that's basically an advisor to the physician. And what that does then is it comes up, since it's an algorithm, it will come up with pretty much the same answer every time similar data is being put in. So what that means is that a patient gets the same answer regardless of which physician the patient sees, and maybe also a bit regardless, because physicians are also not necessarily giving you the same answer. They may be influenced by what they saw in the week prior to seeing you as a patient, and there's lots of other sources of variation there. So that's, I think, one important future role that's currently being developed for bioinformatics or or informatics in the clinic, is to play that sort of to increasingly play that advisor role where, based on past results, uh, the best possible treatment is going to get selected in a, in a fairly automated fashion, where the physician still always makes, of course, the end decision. It will never be just the algorithm.
1: It sounds like something like that would really fundamentally change the relationship. It seems like between the patient and, and the physician. I, I have something specific in mind right now. You know, physicians assume some liability for diagnosing or, or misdiagnosing patients based on some illness. If at some point physicians become mainly people who put data into an algorithm and then communicate the results of that algorithm, how does that change how we think about things like misdiagnoses? I mean, where do we just say, well, you know, this patient was just unlucky because there was some sort of edge case that got misclassified? I mean, it's. Um,
3: I, I remember flying and the pilot announced that a computer was flying the plane. And he sounded so disappointed that his, his responsibility was so much lessened. And he said, well, but don't worry if it makes a mistake. I'm still there. And I think a lot of professions are going to go through this process. I mean, it's, it's happened with Go players. It's likely to happen with Uber drivers and, and who knows what else. And I think in the short term, uh, before the machines take over, one possibility is that doctors will just get better because they're freed from a lot of mundane tasks. So. I I think, you know, for the foreseeable future, I don't think that the job of physician is going to be replaced by a computer. But I I, I see physicians using machine learning and algorithms and bioinformatics in general to identify the salient aspects of large clinical data sets. I strongly believe that that's going to improve the, the quality of clinical care for a large proportion of patients.
2: And there always will be a place for a doctor's intuition, right?
3: It's a double-edged sword, and there have been studies that doctors' intuition is actually very fallible, and in the field of genetics, um, there have been studies that compare intuition. So gestalt, if a patient comes into the room, do you just recognize what they have somehow? And, and, you know, this is possible for Every, every one of us has a certain capacity to recognize um, so just think of maybe Down syndrome, that's that's mm-hmm. something that's very easily recognizable, even mm-hmm. though you can make a mistake. Uh, if you're a very good doctor, you'll have tens or, or hundreds of uh, diseases like that. But it's been shown time and again that this is very, very fallible, mm-hmm. and that the, the other way of actually making a diagnosis is, is more data-driven, with or without a computer consists of, of actually trying to break down the Gestalt into its component parts.
1: Mm. I have a question for Roel to provide a more concrete uh, example for what we're talking about here. Prior to um, your work and, and that of others on using genomic approaches for categorizing various gliomas, what, what would a physician do to do that?
4: So the, the way that works is that a biopsy will be taken from every tumor, also most other tumor types, not just uh, brain tumors. It will be sent to a pathologist who assesses that section, that small piece of the tumor, under a microscope. And by looking at the the morphology of the cells that the pathologist sees, the pathologist will make a decision on what the grading of the tumor is and the type of tumor, whether it's a glioma, meningioma, or other tumor types. So what we are doing now is to have an integrated assessment by a pathologist, but integrated with the status of several molecular markers.
1: Already here's a case where clearly the addition of these various genomic markers is improving upon what a pathologist could do with their own intuition.
4: Yeah, those markers are, you know, the answer is A or B. You you don't have an answer that's in between, whereas uh, studies have shown that different pathologists uh, evaluating the same biopsies may come up with different answers. So in that sense, the molecular markers are clearly stabilizing the diagnosis for these patients.
1: One one day, Annalisa, it's machines, <laughs> all machines. You trust too much in people.
2: Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I
4: <didn't say> <laughs> Well, I I do. I wanted to make one more point on that, and that um, it relates to something that Peter said earlier too, is that it, w- it will provide universal access to high quality care because now it's been shown many times that a oncologist that sees exclusively, uh, let's say, brain tumor patients will give better care than. A oncologist who does anything from breast to gastric to the brain, you know, just because that person will have seen more cases. Once you have the backup of a, a have an algorithm, and that algorithm has knowledge about hundreds of thousands of patients, that will also strengthen the treatments that that lone physician in South Dakota will give. Versus the brain tumor expert at you know Dana Farber or Memorial Sloan Kettering or so and so forth.
0: You're listening to supplemental materials sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory.
2: Okay, we're back. Um, so we've talked a lot about about uh, role in Peter's science. And as we usually do in the podcast, we tend to veer a little bit off course and onto uh, topics that allow us to get to know you a little bit better. Um, So I have a question. Um, You both have been here for, you know, a few months or less, and we very typically inquire about uh, restaurants and food that people have found, interesting restaurants that people have found around here, but since you haven't been here that long, we don't expect you to have n't answered that question. If you do, great. Uh, but what I'm curious to know is what you miss about Houston and, and Berlin. What are their foods that you miss that you can't get here? Or did you bring them or smuggle them into <laughs> in your
3: suitcase? Well, of course, I, I mainly miss people. But um, of course,
2: of course. Yes.
3: I, I was surprised coming back to America after so long that the beer is good Oh, yeah. We've, we've improved a lot there. Very <laughs> good, actually. But I was delighted to see that you could buy a certain type of German beer in Whole Foods called Hefeweizen, oh, yeah, yeah. which um, is uh, an awesome wheat beer that even the microbreweries in the States haven't really quite figured out how to brew, mm. in my opinion. Don't kill me, please. No, no, <laughs> Cheese is very difficult to get in a typical supermarket in, in Germany. You'll You'll just have amazing... Good cheese costs about half as much as it mm-hmm. does here. We found out that you can buy reasonably good cheese in Trader Joe's of all places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love cheese. I'm like uh, Wallace in the I think Whole Foods can be
1: okay sometimes, but their stuff is going to be pricey. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So I don't know that I can give such a perspective about missing things in Houston because I was in Houston for only a few years. Um, however I do strongly relate to Peter's comments about cheese being from the Netherlands where basically every single meal has some version of cheese in it mm-hmm. I heard from my European friends in Boston that there's a dedicated cheese store there oh. that's called something like cheese world I, it opened <laughs> up after <laughs> I had left of course, of course. Oh yeah. cheesy. <laughs> so I haven't had uh, I've only moved here five days ago so I haven't had the chance yet to to go to Boston and check it out but I would recommend you look there for me, another uh, pet peeve is the bread. Dutch uh, bread yeah. is, is v- to me, delicious. And um, we had found a really nice bakery in Houston, uh, so we had to give that up, obviously. So now I'm going to have to look at what's locally available in terms of bakeries and find good bread.
3: There is one good bakery that I know of in West Hartford. They have bread that has body and, and real it's taste. It's not
2: Hartford Baking Company, is it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
3: Great.
4: Really I'll make sure to check that out yes. tonight.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I should check that out too, because we have the same problem. We haven't mm-hmm. found good bread around here. Cheese I think we've got covered by now, but there's some places in Massachusetts between here and Boston where you can find good good groceries. So yeah. there's a chain called Wegmans that does not exist in uh Connecticut, as far as I know. Wegmans also has great uh cheese selection and bread, if you can make it out there.
4: So non-food related, what I do miss about Houston is the local availability of a large international airport, because uh, Houston flies, you can fly anywhere direct from Houston, uh, whereas Bradley uh, has a few connections, but not many. So I'll be doing a lot of uh, sitting in airport, uh, I I expect.
1: The uh, other thing is like driving two and a half
3: hours down to JFK.
2: Or an hour and forty-five to Boston. Yeah. Yep.
3: Yep. Why did the flights cost twice as much from Boston as from JFK? I mean, you're actually flying less mileage to Europe from Boston. I think it depends on, <laughs> yeah. you,
4: yeah. maybe. Tra- M- yeah. More flights from JFK.
1: The traffic, or like which airlines? are... Yeah. Mo- Boston must be a hub for.
4: No, Boston's not a hub. It's, it's not an endpoint for most. So. Okay. Yeah.
1: You, you you went straight to food.
2: I went straight to, <laughs> to yeah. Well, <laughs> <it's fine.
1: laughs> This is actually a great area for um, outdoors type stuff, so if you like hiking or or running or biking, there's some really well-maintained trails around here. Do you guys do stuff like that, or any running?
4: So I only came here five days ago, and on our first morning, we woke up, opened up the curtains, and my kids went berserk because for the first time in their life, they saw snow.
2: Oh, (laughs) Oh, they've never seen it. Mind you, my kids
4: are almost four. We have two lovely twin boys. And they had never seen snow in their life. And so they, they thought that was the best. Um, it did preclude us from running up till now, uh, because the snow is still on the ground. But I certainly am already looking at uh, skiing at Kellington or elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I hope to do a lot of uh, biking, actually, because uh, we're, we live fairly close to the lab, so I expect to be biking to the lab once, uh, once the weather gets a little, little better.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's great, great for biking around here, too. Uh, there's not nearly enough um, bike lanes. Biking, yeah. <laughs> we'll need to color congress people uh, over that one <laughs> but um, there are a lot of
2: beautiful trails the trails are really
1: really good yeah. and they're trying to connect actually there's a trail that run that will run from here all the way down to new haven and it's going to be part of a larger trail system that i think should go like all the way down the coast eventually so hopefully fingers crossed
3: so yeah i'm a bit of a jogger okay. a slow jogger but um <laughs> discovered some of the the great tracks around here. So the Reservoir 6, I believe, really beautiful. And this was a
1: really good conversation with you both. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to do this again sometime. We need to get, we need to get like a panel discussion of all the computational people, or at least the folks that like yeah, to do podcasting. a themed podcast. Or just <laughs> maybe you two and Daria and you can talk about machine learning. So, <laughs> 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 so you, I mean, you, you Daria and Nidmaz was our first guest, and he's, like, obsessed with the idea of machine learning, which, yeah,
4: me too. Aren't we all?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Again, the, you know, the machines, uh, I welcome our robot overlords. <laughs> <So>.
4: <laughs> I read today, it must have been on Twitter, uh, that certain Google AI machines, if you want to call them that way, are sending each other messages, oh, and wow. Google doesn't really know what they are. Oh, Does wow. Doesn't know
1: the messages.
4: It, it knows that there is being communication. Uh, but they don't completely understand what the what those are for. And
1: They're plotting.
4: Exactly. I think this is the start. They're plotting. This is, this is how it begins.
1: Okay, well, on that terrifying note, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, Roel and Peter. And um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Annalisa. Thank you. Right.
0: Thanks for having us. Yeah.
3: Thank
1: you. Bye.
0: Bye. You've been listening to Supplemental Materials, a podcast about genetic science and the people working on the forefront of human health. Sponsored by the Jackson Laboratory, leading the search for tomorrow's cures. Learn more at jax.org, J-A-X dot O-R-G.